This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. There is a danger that if you just let the market get on with it and don't worry, you know, be happy, well, you don't always get good outcomes for everyone. And is it possible, you know, take take science by the horns, if you like, and, and insist that we develop science for everyone, not whatever random haphazard thing we, we tend to get, which since 1980 has been polarizing and pushed us apart. So that, that's a big agenda. I'm not going to get that done in one year. That's Simon Johnson. He's co-author of the book Jumpstarting America, which points to the role of breakthrough science in reviving the economy and creating jobs. He's recently joined President-elect Joe Biden's transition team. This is great to be talking with you today because you're an expert on something that faces every one of us, which is an economy we wonder if we can rely on. And your book, Jumpstarting America, with a wonderful long subtitle that I all I can remember has investing in science in it. How does the subtitle go? How Breakthrough Science Can Revive American Growth and the American Dream. We actually put it, we thought a long and hard, Alan, about putting America in the main title and in the subtitle, but no one's complained about that. <laughs> I think it's... <laughs> well, one thing you did on the cover of the book that I love is you put America with two jumpstart cables that you jumpstart a car with, one on each end of the of the country. Yes, to be to be fair, Alan, the design, we, we did not design the cover. This was designed by a brilliant designer. Uh, and, I, and, and I think they had a really good idea of the, the jumper cables. And of course, the electricity running across the country, which is part of our point, that we've sort of forgotten about the depth of innovation and entrepreneurship capability across the country. We've been, become a little too bi-coastal in, in our innovation machinery, I think. That's a fascinating element in your ideas that you present in the book, that there's a wealth in the diversity of geographical locations in the country, and that's a diversity we don't spend much time thinking about. Why don't we? I think it's mostly historical accident, uh, Alan. You know, if you go back to the 19th century when, uh, you know, U.S. became the top engineering country or the uh, middle of the 20th century when we really uh, catapulted ourselves to the forefront of scientific endeavor, there was no bi-coastal preference or or dominance at that point. There were lots of places around the country that had had expertise and that that had capabilities. Uh, But of course, what happened, particularly over the past 30 to 40 years, is traditional manufacturing came under pressure. Well, that some parts, let's say, the industrial Midwest lost out there. New forms of technology were created, particularly around the personal computer. Okay, so that becomes a California, Silicon Valley type enterprise. Boston, I would remind everyone, had a really, was, was a tech center uh, historically, but had a really hard time uh, in the uh, 1970s, 80s, and into the 1990s. And it's really biotech that, that's helped uh, bring, it, bring it back. So there's a lot of historical accident in here. And, and, and in no way would I say we're, anything is, is, is preordained about the, the, the the West Coast and the East Coast having their, cur- their current predominance in terms of innovation. I've heard you say that talent attracts talent to where it is. Something like that, right? That talent is looking for talent where they are, and they, at the moment, tend to be on the two coasts. What's going to help them break down that uh, that barrier between the two coasts 
and the middle of the country, the rest of the country? What will get people excited about that? Well, that, that's, that's a great question, uh, Alan. And I, and I think that, and that's exactly why we wrote the book, to try and articulate that vision. In our view, the, the, the short answer is we need some public, more public investment in science anyway, uh, just because of where we are in the world and, and the fact we sort of dropped off from the frontier a, a little bit there. Um, and if when we're making those decisions about where to put that public investment, we highly recommend looking at places around uh, the country that where the real estate isn't so expensive, where it's not so crowded, and where you can build a critical mass. And of course, for example, we've done in, in the past um, the um, national labs, which are now a key part of the Department of Energy, are and most of them came out of the Manhattan Project and related technology programs led by the government, those are perfect examples of you can build a lab, you can establish a critical mass of scientists, people will want to move there to be innovative. Now that that was more defense-oriented technology, now we're looking for more commercial-oriented technology, we're looking for jobs, of course. But that same idea of looking for places where it makes sense to, to, to build a lab and to, and to build a cluster of expertise, I think that logic absolutely stands up well today. The basic idea of the book that's presented so cogently in the title is the idea that we can bring back growth, expansion, by investing as a country, not just in the private sector, but as a country in science that represents breakthroughs, which is, to some extent, basic science, I imagine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, again, go back to the 1940s, which was a pivotal moment in, in the history of science and the link between science, commerce and jobs in, in the United States. A major part of what was done during World War II was connecting existing scientific discoveries with what was needed, for example, in, in radar, which is a, the, the leading and, and most powerful example of what, of what happened, I, I would suggest, at that period. But, but after that, the, the scientists who run the war effort said, you know, what we should really do is not rest on our laurels, not assume that the knowledge will be there next time we need it. We should build more knowledge. We should invest in the basic science and in the applied science and we should have some mixture of directed science, a mixture of letting the scientists investigate what they want. And that's the way we'll build a, a, a resilient scientific capability for economic growth and for national security. When we talk about the, the golden age of the middle class in America, we're really talking about that late 40s, 50s into the 1960s. That was a, a very broad science-based push, capitalizing on what had been done in World War II, taking that to the next level, public-private partnerships. Okay, they didn't use that language, but that's what was going on. And of course, in the 1950s, as the Cold War picked up, we didn't divert our, our energy just into producing weapons. We actually looked for ways to make the economy stronger through investing more in science and bringing more of that science into productive private sector use. So I think that was a, a winning combination. We can't go back to exactly that, but I think we can find a future version of that same combination that will, again, serve as well. What about dollars and cents? What did the government contribute to science during the days when we had that great expansion? And what is it contributing now? How do they stand up against each other? Right. So the, the standard way to measure that for, for economists is to look at how much spending the government had devoted to science as a percent of the economy. At our peak in the 1960s, Alan, we were close to 2% of, of GDP. 2% of GDP. Now we're closer to 0.6% of GDP. So the economy's obviously grown, but the science relative to the economy has fallen back. And actually, there's a lot of work that, that, that suggests you should, as you become richer, you may need to invest more and more in science in order to continue to get the gains. Plus, the world has become strikingly more competitive uh, with regard to the technological frontier since the 1960s. So all of that suggests we should at least be trying to do something close to what, where we were in 1965. 
I mean, in, in our book, we propose to go back to 1% of GDP. That's a pretty modest increase, uh, frankly, compared to what we where we, where we were. I think the it's potentially possible politically, uh, but actually just, you know, talking between you and me, I, I would say we should go even further. I think we should push harder, as long as it's jobs, Alan, as long as we're finding ways to convert knowledge into jobs and into a way to share prosperity, I think we should do as much as we can. And there's the idea, too, I've heard this from you, that there's a, a tax advantage as well. The genomics industry, which started as pure science, now not only has created jobs, but all the elements involved have created a great uh, income in taxes to the, to the nation, right? Oh, absolutely. So obviously economists like to talk about the numbers in a somewhat dry manner. But if you just do the numbers, you say, how much did we invest in um, building a genomics industry and in, in, in the mapping out the human genome, which was the first big project? It's about $10 billion. You know, how much revenue do, how long did it take us to get that payback on that investment? That investment was over about 12 to 14 years. How long did it take us to get that payback? <laughs> Just a few years. And, and we currently pull, pull in much more than that in revenue every year. So if you just think it's very, very, very narrowly, cost and benefit, that one paid for itself uh, multiple times over. Now, that was a spectacular home run. I'll grant you that. But if you don't swing for the fences, Alan, you don't hit home runs. Many avenues of research and many specific things won't work out. Thomas Edison tried a really long time to find ways to create a light bulb. <laughs> and he blew all kinds of things up in his lab, apparently, while he was doing that. And he found a better way to make a better light bulb. And from that, an empire and a legend uh, was born. So that's one person, an entrepreneur, private capital, terrific. The world doesn't work quite the same way uh, as, it, as it did in the late 19th century. And so we're looking for ways to add that public catalyst to the mix, just like we did in the 1940s and 50s. Let's say we're a private venture capital company and we, we invest in startups. What do we think is a good ratio of success? Well, most venture capitalists I know, Alan, would be very happy if they had one uh, runaway success or, or home run out of 10, that that's a good fund and that's a reputation. <laughs> and then you can go out and raise more capital or you can retire as, as, as they see fit. Of course, the problem is when the government comes uh, to make these investments, if you have nine solid hits and one failure the conversation in Washington is going to be dominated by that one failure. I, I just want to clarify something from my own thinking. Um, when you say, understandably, that there's a lot of attention paid to failure and it uh, sort of discourages future investments on the part of the government, did you mean to say that they get nine out of ten successes when they do things like this? The, the government has a very high success rate. I mean, the government tends not to be um, as, as we discussed, swinging for the fences as much as they did in the past. But if you look at the, the technologies that, that have come out of government programs, but we've got satellites, uh, we've got uh, GPS within those satellites, we've, we've got um, the entire uh, silicon-based uh, industry. Uh, basically, all the technology that you and I are using right now, Alan, from the computers to the internet, uh, and, and I think probably if we, if we looked inside our microphones also, all of that comes from a, a big public sector in, investments you know, some of it had a defense uh, orientation, I'll grant you that, in the 1950s, but they were always looking for um, civilian use as well. NASA has been about that since the 1960s, saying, look, we'll invent these new materials, we'll, 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 we'll push rockets to the next level, and we'll think about how the various pieces of what we're inventing can be uh, taken over to the private sector in some appropriate manner and become the basis for uh, sustained prosperity. So it's not a new idea. It's a, it's a very well-established idea. It's just one that we, we've not paid enough attention to um, in recent years. So do you have 
ideas about what we should be swinging for the fence for now? Well, that, that's that's a great question, Alan, and, and that is a discussion to, ha- to have with scientists and a discussion that I have with them all the time, scientists <laughs> and engineers, uh, pushing them on, on exactly that. Uh, you know, I, I think given the rather horrendous uh, moment of, of COVID-19 and all its effects, I, I think um, biomedical industry, vaccines, therapeutics, testing, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, a big chunk of investment you could make in that, which frankly, we probably should have made years ago. Um, I think that's absolutely compelling. The second thing that comes up, actually, interestingly, we didn't stress this so much in our book because we felt it might have been, you know, a little polarizing and, and distract from our message. But what people come back to us with now from the left and quietly from the right is energy, clean energy, limiting pollution, think about global climate change. So there's a, there's a big chunk of, of, of technologies that can be developed there and, and, I, and I think uh, the, third, the third thing would be anyth- anything that can generate jobs, anything where we feel that uh, our competitors are, are getting ahead of us, where we feel that it's, this is going to be uh, labor intensive or generate um, well-paying skilled jobs in the future, all of those sectors are worth pursuing, I would say, Alan. But let's also not forget, uh, Alan, that we, we have invested in a lot of science. I mean, you and I are talking over Zoom, where this is part of our working day and, and a part that I I think we're both doing from a place of safety. Not everyone in the country has an ability to access technology, can use technology in that way. And there is a danger, which we talk about in the book, that if you just let the market get on with it and don't worry, you know, be happy, well, you don't always get good outcomes for everyone. And is it possible that technology will help some people and not help other people, or maybe other put other people at a greater disadvantage. That that is, a, I think, a highly relevant policy question, as well as obviously being a you know a very deep sort of quasi philosophical question. Did you come up with some thinking around an answer for that? Uh, yes. Look, the the reason we wrote the book was in, in you know, we started writing the book. Uh, I have to say, almost exactly four years ago, after the presidential election of 2016, because it struck us that um, there had been insufficient attention paid on both sides to jobs and how exactly to create uh, good jobs. Now, I understand some politicians would say (laughs) they were talking about that. We felt that they were not actually proposing realistic uh, approaches. And so when you look at what's happened to jobs, when you look at what's happened to the middle class and you look at the um, some of the some of the some of the drivers of polarization uh, in this country and and the, the pressure on manufacturing, it's clear that it's about who can get what kind of job and where in the country right? The decline of the Midwest, the pressures felt in, in, in some other traditional uh, manufacturing areas. And, and part of that pressure, Alan, to be clear, comes from scientific advance and the way that technology is developed, including the, the personal computer. Because the forms of innovation that have been made possible by this revolution in communications have, without question, put pressure on a certain kind of job that previously was a good, solid, middle-class job. And then now they've, they've tended to, those jobs have tended to disappear. So, I think you have a choice. Either you can say, no more science, we're going to close the borders, we don't want anything to do with innovation, um, and we'll try to hold it to what we've got. Or you say, no, actually, we should embrace science, we should go further, we should make sure that the benefits of science are spread further more and more around the country and throughout the income distribution. So be, you know, take, take science by the horns, if you like, and, and insist that we develop science for everyone, not whatever random haphazard thing we, we tend to get, which since 1980 has been polarizing and pushed us apart. So that, that's a big agenda. I'm not going to get that done in one year. But I think that's the way to think about the, the longer lasting problem that we're, that we're facing here. Will you be able to get people to think that an investment 
in making technology more available to those sectors of the population that at the moment can't afford it and are getting are drifting further and further away from the rest of us who have that access, can we begin to see that as an investment and not a giveaway? Oh, that's, that's a great question, Alan. So let's think about COVID-19, right? So that the power of COVID-19 comes from the fact that a big part of the power comes from the fact we don't all have good access to healthcare, right? If we all had good access to healthcare, if we had cheap diagnostics, if we knew our health status relative to pathogens, and this is, I'm speaking, by the way, of technologies that exist, right? For $5, for $10, you could have a dried blood spot uh, antibody test. You would know the history of your immune system relative to any kind of disease that you've encountered. And from that, uh, with appropriate advice, you could think about how to uh, guard against uh, further infections. And and you would know, or we would know, if we had such a system, uh, when novel coronaviruses or any other new evil pathogen uh, came, came upon us. So that is about, I, what I did there is I just bundled up access to healthcare with a broader public health consideration concern, like let's not have another pandemic. Because even though this, we, I think we agree that the, the pandemic has pushed us apart and there are disparate outcomes, I don't actually think anyone wants to repeat this experience again. Now, if you're saying you have to spend a vast fortune to bring up the bottom 10% of the country in terms of healthcare, yeah, I understand that there would be pushback against that. But if I'm saying that there are cheap diagnostics available and another generation of diagnostics that we could develop and, and they'd be cheap for ourselves and we could sell them to the world, Alan, right? <clears throat> so we could be at the frontier of the next generation of cheap, effective, accurate diagnostics, 300 million people selling technology to 8 billion people going on 10 billion people, that's a good place to be in, in the world economy. Those are jobs that don't quickly disappear. And that's how I would propose we position science, national competitiveness, jobs, and America's role in the world. I think I have a cover for your paperback when it comes out. A COVID mask in the shape of a dollar bill, where we turn our ability to turn back a pandemic into a, a, its own jumpstart. I was astonished to hear you say in, in a talk you gave that when we thought there were only 23 cases in the country in, at the end of February, there were actually tens of thousands that we didn't know about. And that's because we didn't have the technology sufficiently available to see what was happening. Is, have we learned that lesson or is it just a fact in, in, in your head? <laughs> uh, I mean, some people have learned it more than others, I would suggest. I would suggest, Alan, um, look, I, I think that um, we have actually, uh, even though this current situation is a disaster, don't get me wrong, but we have learned some important lessons. And, and a good example would be NIH, National Institutes of Health, stood up a program called RADx, which is the Rapid Acceleration and Deployment of uh, Diagnostics. Um, and they have gone all in, Alan, on finding technology that's, let's say, ready to scale up. So they're not particularly focused on startups because of how they see the time scale. They're looking for people who, who run big labs and who understand scale, who are able to pivot into diagnostics or go from, let's say, a million tests a week to five million tests a week. So that, I, I think, is actually quite a brilliant idea. They brought in outside people from the private sector. They've stood up uh, in, in this context, uh, ad hoc teams assessing these technologies. They've, they've uh, deployed a lot of money. I get no, I'm not part of this program. <laughs> they don't compensate me at all. But I'm just sitting here in, 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 in the front row seat saying, wow, what are we going to get from that, right? Because I don't believe, Alan, that after we invest in these companies, they're going to turn around or be able to turn around and sell us these same diagnostic tests for an astronomical amount of money. Not when we help build the companies. 
They get a return on their capital. Great. They become super famous. Works for me. We're going to get a big return um, from in, in, in terms of the public social benefit. And, and then you've got a, a technology and, and a type of product that, that you can sell to the world. It's not one size fits all. You've got to think about income levels. You've got to think about what's appropriate and so on and so forth. But I think that what we what is emerging, you know, it could have been faster. It could have been smoother. We could have done it in advance. That would have been a good idea. But we are actually getting some public-private partnerships emerging that are encouraging and, and exactly how you would you you should aim to make a society like this one with all its technological advantages, you should aim to make as resilient using that kind of investment. Something occurs to me that's kind of a horror question. What'll happen if they don't pay attention to how to jumpstart America? Yeah, I, I think it's it's an interesting question, Alan. And I've, I, I, my background is in economics, as you know, and I was the chief economist at the International Monetary Fund um, in 2007, 2008. So I, I saw the previous crisis uh, un, unfold. And I understand the, the full panoply of fiscal and monetary and, and other measures that can be deployed by the government. I, I, I don't think, I think those can be helpful. I wouldn't call that a bailout, but I think you can help yourself. A country like the United States can help itself in appropriate ways. But I, but I say to, to everyone right now, Alan, that the only path back to economic prosperity runs through dramatic improvements in public health until we can make people much safer uh, with regard to not transmitting the virus and, and not infecting people who, who, who could die. Now, that's a very unusual moment in, in world history. In fact, I don't think there is a parallel since the, the modern world began, roughly speaking, 250 years ago. I, we used to have bad diseases, sure, in the 19th century, um, but we were used to, the people were used to there being bad diseases, life expectancy wasn't that long, and it wasn't seen as that disruptive. I, I, w- I was born in 1963, and since 1963, right, right when childhood diseases had essentially been conquered by vaccination and, and, and other associated measures, since 1963, th- there has not been a, a global disruptive pandemic of this nature. There was HIV AIDS, which was a terrible disease affecting some people and still not properly controlled um, in, in Africa. And, and of course, there, there were uh, regional uh, outbreaks of diseases like Ebola that were extremely scary and, and, and fought against by the international community, actually uh, in, in moments of, of great solidarity, uh, which, which should give us some, some cause. But we've never seen something this disruptive to the world, this disruptive to American life, this disruptive to the American economy. And it's a, it's a very uh, difficult and, and, dangerous, and dangerous moment. Just, just, and just as in 1939, 1940, 1941, when America realized that the world had changed around it and America's position in the world could not remain the same, because that, that world had gone, right? But by, by the spring of 1940, um, the, the, it was quite clear that the, the previous world had gone. And the question was, what do you want to build? What do you want to do? Do you want to hide? Do you want to pretend it's not there? Or do you want to go out? Do you want to build something? And if you're going to build, what assets have you got? Well, they had science then. They weren't, they weren't even the world's scientific superpower, but they had some science and they figured out how to use it. We have a lot more advantages now, Alan, and I think we've got to put them all into this fray and we've got to build something much better uh, as a consequence. Just perhaps this COVID disaster uh, will serve as a warning to us. When we come out of this one, which, which may say take some time, perhaps we will be more inspired to devote resources to preventing a climate-based calamity um, from being the next major problem that we face. Now, I I think that resilience will will become a theme and resilience will be seen as resilience against um, uh, respiratory viruses, resilience against other forms of pathogens, um, 
and, and, and let's include resilience against anything that's climate change induced, so including the way pathogens move around the world. Um, one of the projects that I'm involved in with some very distinguished scientists is trying to build better weather forecasting for viruses. So mm. if you, you could look up on the website, on websites, for example, exactly what the weather is around the world. You can look at the direction of wind, actually, uh, almost every uh, part, of, part of the globe. So where are the viruses? Which way are they moving? Are they coming towards us? Are they moving away from us? What should we do about it? What preventive measures can we brought into play? That's the kind of integrative uh, project that I think will come out of COVID. And when you look at that, you're going to say, aha, temperatures are changing. How is that changing the movement of viruses and, and, and other pathogens? And, and therefore, what can we do about it? So maybe there's a connection that we can put in there to, to, to make this more real for people. I think it has to be real. It has to be real. It has to be in their faces, Alan. That's what we've learned. From your mouth to America's ears. Thank you, Simon. That's been a really fascinating conversation. I really appreciate your talking with me. All right. Cheers, guys. Thanks a lot. Really enjoyed it. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Simon Johnson, a professor at MIT Sloan School of Management, is a former chief economist at the International Monetary Fund. The book we talked about is Jumpstarting America, How Breakthrough Science Can Revive Economic Growth and the American Dream. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Kavli Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Michael Drake. He's newly installed as the president of the University of California, and we talk about the challenges in the age of COVID, of running an institution of 10 campuses and some half million students and staff. One of the terrific things about human beings is that we're able to learn and to know new things and to be curious about things and to develop that curiosity moving forward. And uh, when you say education, the, 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 the picture that comes into my mind, forgive me, as a California, as a freeway, kind of a freeway to the future and a, a pathway to, to uh, really living our human potential. Michael Drake, 
next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.